It's Friday, June 11th, and we are one week away from the French Grand Prix. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a ton of stuff to talk about. Welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. Joining you tonight, as always, is Mr. Mark Hamilton and Mr. Mark Daly, repping the great city of Vancouver on the west coast of Canada. we got a whole bunch of stuff we're going to talk about today. The, not the least of which is Red Bull, the rise of the glory and unstoppable super team. We're going to talk a little bit about the inevitable, complete and total collapse of Mercedes and Valtteri Bottas. That is inevitable. We are going to talk about the rise of the lovable character, Yuki Sonata, and we're going to take your Twitter questions. But before we get into those meaty subjects, my friend, I got a couple of beefs to have to pick with you. Oh, really? First, First. we've known wow. each other for about a year and a half. Yeah, about that, uh, yeah. We do a lot of work together on social media. Mm-hmm. And the other day, I log into my personal Twitter account, and I see I've got a new follower. I'm like, mm-hmm. That's fantastic. It's you. How does it take you a year and a half to follow me? And number two, oh, I'll let you respond. So please respond. I I have no defense. The only thing I'm worse at than being an actual real life friend is a friend on social media. So I'm just, uh, I'm I'm that guy. (laughs) I I have to share too, my boss, uh, who's been my boss on and off for probably 11 or 12 years now, I originally added him, tried to add him on Facebook in 2009, and he still... And I think at this point, it's probably almost a running joke. He still hasn't added me. So 12, 13 <laughs> years later, not that I'm a big Facebook guy, but, but yeah, it hurts a little bit. And then the other thing too is last Sunday, we did our recap of Baku, the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. Yep. Fantastic race. I was so excited. Your preamble, by the way, was excellent. But at 37 minutes, I think you covered all of the topics and we probably could have gone right into the close. <laughs> Today, you've allowed me to do the intro and I'm going to take this as far as I can. But That's I awesome. I'm, this- I'm just going to I'm going to put my chair back. I'm, I'm going to just uh, I'm going to chill out. And every once in a while, I'm just going to interject with a, a couple of, you know, all right. Sounds good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah exactly. Yeah, totally yeah. agree. And this is BC. So I'm sure you've got some craft beers in a small <laughs> bar fridge in your recording studio. But in, in all seriousness, you know, shout out to our listeners for a couple of reasons. Obviously, our social media engagement has been exceptional the last couple of weeks, the yeah. last month, the last two months. Um, obviously, we're excited to hear, excited to talk to everybody. We tried a couple of things via Twitter this week. We tried Twitter spaces yesterday. And shout out to everybody that was able to join us. We were we're really just testing the capability and to get a sense of whether that's something we wanted to do in the future again. And honestly, like the turnout was fantastic. So shout out to Barry, Joe, Charlie, Andre, uh, Wallace, Williams, RJ, Rako, um, Leo, and everyone whose name I forgot to record. But we had a really great three-hour session. And I think the other thing we've been doing as well, and we're going to be doing another one this coming Monday, is a show that's geared a little bit more towards answering your questions. But before I pass it over to you, my friend, because I know you've got some really exciting updates as well, I do want to apologize to everybody. Uh, I think a lot of people are really excited. We're excited. And we're getting a lot of questions. And I think two weeks ago, I had about 200. <laughs> and I'll be honest, I'm not the most organized person in the world. So I'm I'm tr- I'm struggling to categorize them and keep track of them. So if we ever miss a question, don't think it's because we we don't have love for you and your question. Just follow up with us. Be that squeaky wheel because ultimately that will get the proverbial grease eventually. But my friend, I know you've got an exciting update for everybody as well. Well, first, uh, b- before I get to the exciting update, I mean, if you're going to put me on blast, I'm going to have to reciprocate and put you on blast. Okay, yes, after all this time, I actually did give you a follow on social media. 
I don't know if I got a follow back, but hey, you know, I, I'm not going to, you know, <laughs> I did actually go and check, but uh, I'm, I'm just going to put it out there. So m- maybe it's a half hearted blast. But anyways, before we get into the show, I want to give a, a shout out to our friends, Jeff and Jeff Andy, the uh, the hosts of the Evolving Dads podcast. Uh, they had us on as their very first inaugural guests a couple of weeks ago. And uh, and that dropped. Uh, it was good fun. We we talked to uh, Formula One. We talked about what it's like to, um, to to be dads, obviously. So go check them out. Uh, their uh, website is evolvingdads.com. Uh, you can also find them on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash evolving.dads. They're also on Instagram at evolving.dads and also on Twitter at evolvingdads. So they just uh, th- it, this just launched and I think they've already got about uh, three or four episodes uh, teed up that are going to drop. Uh, if not already, they're going to drop at any time. So it was uh, really exciting uh, and it was uh, fun to get involved and uh, help them uh, launch this uh, cool new project uh, of theirs. Cool. All right. Well, Mark, where do we want to start? Like you said, uh, we've got uh, we've got emails, we've got tweets, we've got lots and lots and lots and lots of news to, to get into uh, this week. So why don't we let's start with the news? I mean, th- this is sure. what uh, we should usually be talking about. And uh, I should find my notes here. But, you know, the, the one thing that I, I've really sort of sat back after the last, uh, you know, the, the, the race last weekend, and it really, <laughs> it was awesome. I, I really enjoyed it at the time. And that hasn't uh, diminished uh, at all. But, you know, I thought was uh, really interesting is that the, the, the drivers were 100% behind uh, the race director's uh, decision to resume the race after the, bla- or, sorry, the red flag, uh, just a couple of laps uh, from the end there after uh, Max had his uh, big uh, you know, tire blow it and everything like that. And it was exciting. And uh, we, we talked about it at the time that, uh, you know, if, if this is what we could look forward to just in a very spontaneous two lap uh, shootout and a uh, real sprint to the end, that it's going to be pretty exciting, or at least we hope it will, that it bodes well for the sprint races. But I'm excited uh, to hear that, uh, that the drivers themselves were very much in favor of this because I feel that their initial reaction to the whole um, confirmation, if you will, about uh, introducing the uh, limited um, run of sprint races this year was a bit lukewarm. What, what, what do you think? This is a topic I'm really excited about. And it's something that I hear from our listeners consistently about in terms of our thoughts. How can it be modeled? How can it be improved? But I totally agree with that thought that you shared on Sunday about the fact that perhaps the most exciting part of that race was the restart, the grid restart. And it was a super short shootout, right? It's like anything goes, anything can happen because you don't have 50 or 60 laps where the field's going to spread out. So it was super unpredictable. And I thought that was exciting. And I think as well that you your assertion that, hey, that experience, that feeling, that emotion could translate into sprint qualifying is totally, totally valid. And if anything, it just got me more excited for sprint qualifying. And I think the first event we're going to see that will be in Silverstone, which is coming up super, super quickly. I think the other thing, and this came up with a number of our listeners as well, and kind of when I was perusing Reddit and some of the other kind of Formula One theme sites, is this idea that And I don't think this is going to change because I think the TV networks would just die because it would cut into their TV revenue. But I wonder sometimes, too, whether the F1 Grand Prix itself is too long. It's a pretty big commitment, an hour 30, Mm -hmm. an hour 40, especially if the outcome's predetermined. And of course, in Baku, it wasn't predetermined. It was super unpredictable. And there was lots going on. So people stayed super engaged. But I think what's going to make 
sprint qualifying so exciting is it's kind of a smaller bite-sized chunk. You can sit down and consume it in one go. And I think the other thing that's going to be interesting is a Formula One race today will always have, by the sporting regulations, a tire change. So you've got to wear two different compounds over the course of the race, which means there's always going to be a little bit of strategy involved in doing that pit stop and qualifying it's going to be a little bit different and and that component of the strategy is going to be gone which to me is just fine because i'd rather and i i'm not totally clear on what the tire regulations are for sprint qualifying i would rather see these cars go out on the softest possible tires and just go all out i don't want to see cars nursing tires for 30 laps to conserve to conserve compound and grip for the the final sprint at the end like i would rather just see these cars go all out and attack in every single corner so mm-hmm. i'm super pumped and i don't know if that answers your question but the one other thing i'll quickly add too is we had a lot of questions about who and why are certain types of restarts kind of determined like who determines that why is it determined and and ultimately we leaned into tim haraney for this one because i actually went to the technical regulations and i went to the sporting regulations because it's like what is the deciding factor what drives this and and his perspective was really ultimately it just comes down to the stewards um they'll ultimately make that decision based on circumstances based on track condition uh based on timing and all those kind of pieces so that was very much a conscious effort to do the grid restart at the end and I was totally all for it. Yeah, it is interesting too uh, because uh, we have to remember that there is a two-hour time limit to, to run these uh, races, right. and you don't often see them come up against it. Sometimes you do when the weather's really bad, and uh, the lap times are obviously slower, and there are red flags and things like that, and they they do have to stop the race. It, it is not unusual. It, it's not very common, but it 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 does. It's one of these things that occasionally pops up every couple of years. I mean, like you say, I mean the weather was good, the the time was fine, they were within the two hours, and uh, race director. Michael Massey said, uh, basically, he said there was no reason why they should not uh, restart that that race for the last uh, couple of laps. And I think, uh, too, that it was probably pushing about uh, 5.30, quarter to 6 local time in Baku City, because I think a race start was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, there and uh, it was good. I, I mean, in those conditions, if there isn't a, an obvious safety concern uh, for you know weather or something on the track, or you know like what we saw in Bahrain last year when um, Grosjean had his uh, big accident and they had to rebuild, uh, you know the Armco barriers and stuff like that. Um, you know th- that wasn't the case in, uh, in 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 this race. I mean, it was the fact that we saw a couple of very bizarre tire you know meltdowns basically the way that uh, those uh, tires on both uh, Lance Stroll and uh, Max Verstappen's car just uh, really came apart i mean the, the the safety issues with the tires themselves and that they weren't really living up to or the the, the expected tire life and uh yeah I, I think that they made the right call it was exciting and uh, th- this isn't the first time because they, they did it last year in monza as well because we saw a couple of red flags most noticeably when uh, when charles had his big shunt in parabolica when he went into the tire barrier there you know big heavy crash and they stopped it and then you know, had all the mayhem and at one point because there was two red flags and that one wasn't there and then i think lewis got the uh you know, he got penalized for entering the pit lane which was that was a bit of a tough one because he kind of went into the wrong time and uh, when they just as they were closing the grid lane or the, the pit lane he was already uh, committed 
But uh, th- this was different than Monza because the the amount of uh, laps left to, to run was a lot shorter, and it, it was exciting. And just uh, like we saw last year in Monza, that it did kind of shake uh, things up. And I guess ultimately, if you're a guy like Nikita Mazepin, that the uh, you know having a uh, you know a restart two laps uh, from the end. You know, you still have finished down towards the bottom of the race uh, order, but at least you didn't finish four laps behind. <laughs> so I, I guess totally. that there are positives to to be drawn. I just I got a text from my wife as well, uh, just regarding sprint qualifying because yep. I wanted to clarify this. So this is interesting. So for sprint qualifying, of course, in the actual Grand Prix, t- teams have to rotate through two different compounds but in sprint qualifying each driver has a free choice of tires at the end of the sprint qualifying they will return the set with the most completed laps unlike the grand prix on sunday there is no obligatory pit stop during sprint qualifying so uh, conditions conditions allowing i think teams would probably just go out on the softest possible compound on Mm -hmm. that that weekend and just go all for it but it's interesting that you just touched on nikita mazapan too because one of the things that i think you and i failed to touch on on sunday and honestly i i think we can be forgiven for this because there were so many other pieces happening was the incident that happened between nikita mazapan and teammate um mick schumacher towards the very very end of that that final lap yeah, and it is interesting uh, too. Uh, I mean, the, what was happening is that uh, Mick was uh, trying to make an overtake on uh, Nikita coming down the very long start finish uh, straightaway there. And, uh, you know, I'll be completely honest, I completely missed uh, missed out on it when it happened. And in the immediate aftermath, I did see something. And um, when I was uh, just reading up on all the news and all the takeaways from the race itself, and it was really quite interesting because uh, the, the headlines that I saw regarding the incident immediately after the race was, it was almost that um, that Haas was downplaying. It was like, oh yeah, it was no big deal. We, 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 we've dealt with it and it's a bit of a non-issue. But uh, I wish I had a link to it because I saw something on uh, YouTube uh, earlier this week where somebody had taken and basically synced both in-car cameras from, from Nikita and from, from Mick. And it really is quite apparent. I mean, when, when you see it side by side, it wasn't just like a little flick of the steering wheel to avoid something like a manhole or a water valve or something like that. It was a real sharp turn. You know, you saw his uh, left hand really go over. I mean, drivers are allowed to make that uh, that that one defensive maneuver to try and protect uh, the position. But at that point on the straightaway with the amount of speed that Mick was passing and he was already alongside Nikita Mazepin, that there there was no defense, no pun intended, to, to uh, for 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 what he did, and I was actually I was really quite shocked. And then of course you know you hear like uh, Mick on the uh, on, on the radio effing and blinding, and obviously very very upset at what happened. And I I I was just I was thinking afterwards I was like why did this not get more play? Was it just um, so many other people in the media, much like ourselves, just. Uh, just so busy focused elsewhere on what happened on Sunday afternoon that this, I think was, it was, it was pretty egregious. I completely agree. It was, it was shocking. And I I think from Nick's perspective, he should and is forgiven for his reaction, right? Like I'll, I'll be honest, if I'm driving down the street and somebody switches into my lane, even if they're a half kilometer ahead without signaling, I am going to curse up a storm. (laughs) If I am doing 300 plus kilometers an hour and somebody in front of me makes a dangerous maneuver into my lane, you know, that that's life threatening. And I think one of the things that we're all very aware of is that Mazepan has 
upset a lot of the F1 drivers this year. It's almost a running joke. He got Latifi swearing. He got Lance swearing. He got Kimmy swearing. He's got Mick swearing. Like He's upset a lot of drivers. And part of this could just be that he's a, a young driver, but I think a lot of it just is a direct reflection of the way he conducted himself on the track in Formula 2 and some of the earlier formula. And I think the one thing that we're very lucky hasn't transpired yet is actual contact with another car because mm-hmm. in this case, if he made contact with with Mick, there's there's every reason to believe that one of or maybe both of those core cars would have been launched airborne and there could be very serious damage or possibly injury. And I think the sport, I think Haas and I think the ownership of that team have been very, very lucky that Mazapan's been relatively unscathed so far. And we were talking about this in the live chat yesterday on Twitter spaces, but ultimately that's just a byproduct or a knock on effect of the fact that he's driving the worst car on the track. And because he's so far behind everyone else, and because he's effectively getting blue flagged by the race leaders, he's never in a position where he's outright racing another car. And that was one of the few exceptions this year when there has been a competitive battle between him and somebody else. And he, he demonstrated that he's not mature enough as a driver yet to handle that situation effectively. And we're just, we're super lucky that nobody was hurt. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this uh, section of track i think is starting to maybe develop a bit of a reputation now i mean we saw lance and max obviously have big moments there on sunday then there was that that incident uh, with nikita and mick schumacher uh, then uh, of course uh, lewis uh, switching the uh, you know having his magic button uh, issues and we've seen a lot of guys go off in that corner over the years and not to mention uh, max verstappen and uh, danny ricardo having that big come together at uh, at 2018, uh, when uh, Danny Ricardo yeah. went up the uh, you know the up uh, uh, Max's gearbox in turn one there. Anyway, so let's take a quick uh, break here, Mark. When we come back, uh, there's still a couple of stories left uh, in the aftermath of the uh, Azerbaijan Grand Prix. I want to talk about that in just a moment? So don't go away. We will be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights and more. Whether you're into speed, power or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show, everyone. And well, Baku, that is one of those uh, tracks that, uh, you know, you do usually see a safety car. And just to sort of follow up and pick up uh, where we left off uh, just before the break there, uh, we did uh, see that obviously a couple of times uh, this past weekend. And we've seen, have we had a safety car there every year since uh, 2016 or 2017? It sure sure feels like it. Anyways, uh, some of the drivers, including Charles Leclerc, Sebastian Vettel, uh, and Carlos Sainz have all uh, spoken up after the race there and uh, they said they were quite a concern that there was a bit too long of a delay in actually deploying the safety car after max uh, had that uh, tire puncture and crashed into the wall 
And um, yeah, well, I mean, obviously safety uh, has to be uh, paramount. And uh, I, I'm not really too sure why it would have uh, taken uh, the race director and the stewards so long to uh, really uh, get the car out and uh, deployed. I mean, um, you have cars there, obviously a lot of uh, debris on the track uh, at that point, all the carbon fiber bits that came off of Max's car after he crashed into the wall. And uh, I, I think that's basically what uh, these uh, three drivers, uh, for example, were talking about is just this uh, delay in getting the safety car out there because obviously they couldn't just push Max's car out of the way. There was far too much uh, debris out on the track. It just, it seemed like a bit of a, a no brainer, but I guess it's always a little bit easier when you're sitting at home and watching on TV. I, I agree. I think the difference in this case is it's not like Max was a back marker and he was at the back of the pack in a distant corner away from the grandstand of the production studios. He was leading the race. He was on camera when it happened in real time, live to an international TV audience. Like th this wasn't a surprise. And I think everybody knew what happened. I think what's really disappointing to your point is simply how long it took not only to deploy a safety card, but car, but to get the flags out and to caution the other drivers that there was an incident ahead, right? Like you have a car approaching max 20 seconds later that has no understanding that there is a massive, massive wreck on the track in front of him. And I, I think obviously max was put in a very, very vulnerable position because he's standing next to that car. while you have cars approaching that aren't aware that there's an incident. Max is in a position where he has to get off the track. These other cars are approaching at 250 or 300 kilometers an hour, and there is debris everywhere. And if you pick mm -hmm. up a piece of debris, once again, there's nothing stopping you from experiencing a puncture and ending up a wall. It was a very, very poorly handled situation by the stewards in the FIA and of all the things that they need to look at during this race. And there's a couple of things, right? Track configuration, potentially, uh, obviously, Pirelli's going to have their ongoing study of the issues with the tires that led to both this crash and the Lance Stroll situation. But it was very, very frustrating. And for me, if this is a six kilometer track and it was a back marker that went off in a distance corner when it's rainy and dark and there were no immediate camera views, mm -hmm. this was this was a this was somebody that was leading the race. We all saw it happen in real time. It's inexcusable that they couldn't deploy a safety car faster or at least caution the drivers as to what had happened. And we even heard as well. You heard the Red Bull team on the radio with the FIA mm -hmm. pleading, pleading for a red flag. And one, we rarely ever get that level of insight when you see the teams or hear the teams talking to the FIA, but they're screaming for a red flag, screaming that there's an issue with the tire and screaming with the FIA to bring the cars into the pit so they have an opportunity to change their tires. It was very sloppy, very, very sloppy for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'd completely forgotten about that. That was very unusual to hear the you know the the, the Red Bull pit wall, uh, you know the the sporting director on the, the the radio to race director saying we had no warning, we had no idea this was going to happen. Yeah. There was still life in these tires, and we only knew when it was happening when it happened. And uh, I, I think that uh, they they laid it out uh, perfectly, saying that uh, you know give everybody the chance to come in and change these tires because I mean I, I guess Lance had been pushing his tires a little bit uh, longer, but maybe not too too much because i don't think that the set of tires that he used were that much older than say the the, the life yeah. of the tire that uh, that max had because if i'm correct i think that uh lance had his issue right in around lap 29 or 30 lap 29 yeah, yeah uh, so that's about 75 percent of the predicted uh life expectancy of those tires they were saying that they should have been good for about 40 laps so i mean he had at least another you would think eight or nine laps before they really got to that uh you know the the, the end of their life i mean you think at least another five or six at the very very minimum so that's why it was uh, so shocking for for both of 
them, but I wanted to get your your take on something else. So uh, Nico Rosberg, 2016 world champion, uh, he's got his own YouTube channel, he's got his own podcast, he does uh, some media work and stuff like that uh, for the F1 broadcast. Anyways, on his YouTube uh, channel, um, in the run-up uh, to the race, he did a virtual lap around uh, Baku. And uh, he, and I'll, I'll read out uh, the exact uh, comment uh, that uh, came out of uh, Nico's uh, stream. Anyways, he said, quote, I'm going to show you one of the places I've always found the most dangerous of the whole year. It was quite scary. You're arriving uh, down here now at 350 kilometers per hour. No, look what's on the left. And he's uh, yes. talking about the pit, yes. pit entry at uh, Baku. It was uh, quite scary. Oh, sorry. Uh, so uh, continuing, he says, uh, imagine something breaks on the car. You're here at 350 kilometers per hour. On the left, there's just a wall and it's facing you. If something breaks and you're in that wall, it's the end. No more for you. This is just one of the most scariest places I've ever driven in an F1 car. Uh, to go by there just feels ridiculously wrong, but you have to try and blend it out. End quote. Anyways, uh, Michael Massey, the, uh, the the F1 race uh, director, he didn't agree with uh, Nico and uh, what he had to say because he says that the, the circuit has met uh, all the uh, FIA's uh, grade one requirements for the circuit. Anyways, uh, Massey had to say, quote, no, I disagree with that comment. The pit entry and the entire circuit has been designed and is uh, ho- homologated. That's a new word for me. I must admit. I can't. I cannot say that word. <laughs> I haven't ever been able to say that word. Uh, something like that. Anyways, uh, by the FIA as a grade one circuit, it fulfills all of the various safety requirements that the FIA has within its uh, regulation requirements. So no, I disagree. But I mean, if you do look at some of the pictures there going down the pit straight, it it does look a little bit more scary than I guess it is in real life. I mean, especially that there's no tire barriers there. I mean, it, it is. It does sort of flare out i mean it's not like it's just like a you know you, you'd hit it sort of end on uh, end on it is sort of angled but there is a bit that sort of just uh, sort of curls around the actual entry into the pits and then there's tires and looks like crash barriers on the other side but on the on the actual inside of the track on the left hand side it's it's nothing i mean it looks like it's a barrier with uh, some banners on it maybe there's uh you know some sort of tires behind it's kind of hard to uh, see from the uh from the pictures i'm looking at right now but it it is a bit scary looking i mean on one of the fastest sections of track that we see the entire year i i can completely appreciate what nico rosper's uh, talking about here I rarely ever agree or care about anything that Nico Rosberg says, (laughs) but this is one of those cases where I I, I have to agree with him. And we actually did post a photo of this. So we we retweeted something that Tom Bellingham had posted earlier today, Tom from WTF1. I totally agree. This is, it's not something that's obvious on television because you don't get that top down view. You're typically, the camera angle is probably more parallel. So it kind of just blends into the background, but there's two pieces here. One, Lance is lucky that his tire failure happened where it did because if he was two, 250 meters farther down the track, it's very possible he may have been thrown into that. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the footage, Max's tire failure began almost directly parallel or directly adjacent, although on the opposite side to the track, to this piece that you're kind of describing or describing where the fence kind of bends inwards, the catch fence bends inwards into the pit. So I, I get it, right? Like if you're entering the pit, you know what, at that point, you're probably geared down and you're probably under 150 kilometers an hour. So if you have a tire failure, it's not going to be good, but it's not going to be catastrophic. Like it's at 300 kilometers an hour. Max was lucky because his track position, he was positioned on the right side of the track. Now that said, even if he was on the right side of the track, when you, when you have a tire failure like that, you have very little or no control over the direction of the car. You could easily be flung 
50 meters across the track into that fence. I absolutely agree. And I encourage everyone to look at our Twitter feed because we did repost this and you'll see what we mean. Max, if he was probably a little bit more centered to the track or if he'd been tracking on the left side of the track, and I don't think that's typically the racing line at Baku, but if he was, he could easily have been thrown. And it's one thing to make contact with a wall when you're racing parallel to it. It's another to make contact with a wall when you go straight into it. And that's potentially what could have happened here. And that's why it was so dangerous. And that's why I agree with Nico. Yeah, you know, it is interesting uh, too. I mean, uh, not that uh, racing sims are any real indication of uh, real life, but uh, I, I did find it quite interesting. I mean, uh, I've, I've played the F1 game quite a bit. Uh, not that I'm any good, but uh, that's a completely different discussion. But it did help lend a bit of context after Grosjean's uh, big uh, crash at uh, Sakir last, uh, last year into that Armco barrier, which uh, was sort of similar in a sense to Baku, where it was off to the one side of the track. It wasn't the pit entry. It was kind of an access road. And there was this Armco barrier that was... It wasn't quite uh, parallel to the track. It was sort of angled a little ways. And then there was an opening on one side, sort of on the, uh, you know, against the flow of the circuits. Uh, so it could be accessed by service vehicles or, you know, a tow truck or whatever to remove a, a car from the track. However, I mean, uh, th that was different because the way that that crash unfolded in the way that uh, Grosjean made contact and it threw his car over to the right like that. And then he basically went off the track and hit that uh, section of Armco barrier at a right angle was something that they probably never foresaw because I, I did look at it uh, doing some laps in the uh, in the race sim and it is quite far off of the track and the one thing that I've noticed uh, just uh, you know playing the, uh, the the you know driving around uh, the Baku city circuit is that when you come out of those final um, you know very sharp 90 degree kind of corners and then when you come back onto that uh, start finish uh, straight away I mean there are some it, it bends slightly a couple of times before it straightens out and you know once you put the gas down and you're accelerating those little flicks to the right each time come very very quickly and uh, before you know it you know you are at uh at, at, at your top speed and <laughs> when you see this thing now is that it's completely raised a red flag to me that i'd never really been aware of uh, before because the racing line is more towards it's it's not really in the center it's more over to the right hand side of the track but it, it is a little bit uh, scarier looking than i've maybe had appreciated uh before now now this is a, an interesting one the, the the next one this comes from alpha tower team uh, principal france tost who uh says that he believes that yuki sonoda's pace at uh, baku was so fast he was afraid that Yuki might actually have a crash. So uh, anyways, he said, uh, quote, Yuki did a fantastic job, I must say. Okay, he had a small uh, incident, but that was in Q3 and that can happen. It also uh, happened to more experienced drivers. And today his race pace was sometimes unbelievable. I was really worried that uh, something happens because he was really fast. He is in a very good way. And I think he will come up with some good results also in the second half of the season when he gets a little bit more experience, especially on the tracks that he knows, end quote. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess, uh, you know, you could always have that, uh, that, that opportunity to crash, especially if you're pushing it, but I've never actually heard it sort of put in that exact, uh, terminology or explained in uh, such a way. But, uh, anyways, it was good to see uh, Yuki have a good race again after having a, you know, several very difficult ones, uh, after the, uh, opening rounds in, uh, uh back, sorry, I was going to say in Baku and Bahrain 
earlier this uh, spring. But Yuki was not getting love for everyone uh, because Andreas Seidel, who was the team principal at uh, McLaren, said uh, he was a very, well, he said he didn't agree with the way that uh, race director Michael Massey decided not to take any action against uh, Yuki Tsunoda and speeding uh, during the uh, the double f- uh, wave yellows after Max's um, uh, crash there at the end of the race. Um, a- anyways, uh, Michael Massey said that the entire uh, field could have been uh, penalized for not slowing under double yellows. Uh, in accordance with the the, uh, the 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 sporting regulations, so I guess obviously Massey and the stewards were taking the view of, well, if I'm going to give it to one driver, then I'm going to have to give it to all of them except for Max, who's obviously in the <laughs> in the concrete wall. So, what's uh, really the the the, the point? And then, uh, you know, he, he did follow up because uh, he was told that uh, Sonoda's uh, breach and speeding was uh, was obvious, uh, to which he retorted, well, when it comes to penalties, they're all obvious, <laughs> except for the ones that maybe need a little bit more examination. But anyways, I'm going to leave it there. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, is, is it time to delve into the mailbag? I know it's you know bursting what? at the seams or no. When we come back, I want to add a little bit of color to that YouTube sure. comment. Okay. But, uh, but then we can jump into the mailbag. Awesome. We've got some great questions. This awesome. Week. Okay, well, let's do that. We'll, we'll break here. We'll be back in a moment. So, guys, don't go away. We'll be right back. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. We're talking Formula One. We're talking Baku. We are talking Yuki Sonoda. And you wanted to add a little bit more to uh, what I was talking about just before the break there. And uh, the calls from uh, McLaren to or their, their disagreements there. Their, their chagrin that uh, that Yuki was not uh, penalized for speeding under the double wave yellows after Max's uh, crash at the end of the race. So, so your thoughts on that, please? Yeah, far less interested in that, and more honestly, just interested in his pace and his racecraft. One, I love his personality, and mm-hmm. I keep talking about this, but every time I think about it, I start laughing, which is that that whole radio clip they played on the broadcast where the pit wall is saying faster, faster, push harder, push harder. And you hear this pause. And then he screams back. I, I am shut up. Like just the fact that you have this rookie driver telling the pit wall to shut up is. That uh, toss and the rest of the alpha Tori team were a little bit concerned about the pace and whether he was going to be able to keep that car out of the wall uh, to give a little bit of context. So, not surprisingly, Max posted the fastest lap of 144.5. Sergio was second, 144.7. Lewis was third, 144.8. Sebastian Vettel was 144.9. Yuki had the fifth fastest lap at Baku at 144.9. So he was point four and a half seconds, 0.46 seconds off of Max. So there's still a pretty significant delta. But kudos to Yuki. Uh, this was obviously the first time he'd seen this track. And he scored points in Bahrain earlier this year, but... From a, from a Formula 2 driver, that's a track that they spend an extensive amount of time there. They they do pre-season testing there. They do winter testing there. They do in-season testing there. They race there. It's a pretty conventional track. This is not an F2 track. So kudos to Yuki for bringing that car home safely. Kudos to him for coming home seventh. And kudos for him for putting in such a, a fantastic track time. Because I think he's going to become a fan favorite. And I think the only other thing that I would add here too is and there's kind of been a lot of commentary about this recently is what's the future of the Alpha Tauri team 
in Formula One. Obviously, they're not going anywhere and their financial footing is very, very healthy. But if we're going into a cost cap era, there's nothing stopping Red Bull from positioning Alpha Tori as something other than a feeder team for Red Bull Racing. And if you potentially have Pierre Gasly, and I think we're probably going to see a long-term extension with him at that team at some point in the near future, and Yuki, you have a really really competitive, compelling driver lineup with a car that's matted to whatever this Honda power unit becomes because these cars are incredibly fast. And Gasly obviously won a race in this car last year and he scored a podium this weekend. Like That's a team that I'm very, very excited about. Yeah, it really is a, an interesting uh, team to watch because, I mean, like you say, I mean, uh, prior to their branding as Alpha Tauri, I mean, they were uh, Toro Rosso for years and years and years. And that totally was what that, uh, that, that team was four was just a, a development team. It was a junior team, basically to give Red Bull's uh, academy drivers the opportunity to get uh, minutes and races in Formula One to develop and mature with the, and with the, the ultimate goal to upgrade to the big team, which has and has not always worked out. Uh, probably more in the recent future has not been as successful for them, as we've seen with the musical chairs with Gasly and Albon and Kvyat and Max uh, himself i mean most of them uh, making the round trip started at alpha tauri slash toro rosso going to red bull and then ending uh, back uh, at alpha tauri or toro rosso again except uh, max uh, verstappen and that's why the whole sergio perez discussion is so fascinating right is because he is that one guy that uh, came into the car into the team uh, from outside the system uh, and uh, it's really kind of gone against their whole philosophy so it it really it really poses an interesting question. I mean, the car's good, the engine is obviously good, and uh, in in this cost cap era, and I, I guess uh, more to the point is uh, what uh, what what is Red Bull going to do in the future with their own drivers? Right? Are they, are they still going to try and feed them through there? Because I mean, Pierre Gasly, I mean, he's he's a good Formula One driver. I mean, we, we, he obviously struggled at Red Bull. I mean, but I mean, he's won a race. He had a podium this past weekend, and I think he's had some pretty solid outings in this car especially since uh, he was switched back down there i mean 2020 was a good year for him and uh it's 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 fascinating i mean if uh, we can see what uh, what yuki does and how he develops over the course of the year yeah i don't know it, it's gonna be a fun one to watch okay would you like to jump into some questions i've got and it's sure because i think that I think that whole conversation we're just having kind of segues perfectly into this one. So let okay. me bring this up here. Da, 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 da. So the question is, the question is for a new fan. So this comes from Seth. Okay. For a new fan, perform a hard sell job on what team or driver or team and driver that new fan should watch. So we've got this great, excited, enthusiastic NBA fan and Seth. He's come over to the world of Formula One. He hasn't developed an allegiance yet. Sell him on a team, sell him on a driver. I'm curious to hear yours and then I'm going to do mine. Okay, I'm going to go with McLaren. I'm going to go with Lando Norris because oh. I mean, you, yeah, I mean, you could go with Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes because I mean, why wouldn't you? I mean, if you want to see a driver that's won it all, that's won all the records, and uh, you know he, he's got a, the, you know, one of the best cars in Formula One, then that that's that's the obvious choice. I mean, if you dig into it a little bit deeper, Lewis, you know, how many years has he got left in Formula One? We don't know, right? But on the flip side, you've got a young, extremely exciting talent in Lando Norris. I mean, he's had some great results. I mean, he's really sort of found his feet over the last uh, year, 18 months or so. 
And well, I mean, he had a very good rookie season, of course. But then you've got the interesting story about uh, McLaren. And I mean, they're a team that's really come back. Uh, they've been resuscitated, brought back uh, to life um, after they switched from the Honda engines to the Renault. Now they're back with the Mercedes, where they had a partnership for a long, long time. And uh, they had uh, a lot of su- uh, success um, as a constructor with those Mercedes engines. And well, I mean, they're obviously not in the the position right now to win uh, a, a race, but I feel that something special is brewing there. So maybe if you're the fan of the slow burn, almost, uh, you know, maybe this is uh, something for you. Uh, certainly, that's uh, something that uh, I have to admit that Lando is one of those drivers that I've uh, really been uh, keeping an eye on. And I get uh, excited every time I see him have a good race out there. But th- that would be my call. I, I would go with Lando Norris and uh, McLaren. Who, who are you going with? A- I think that's a really good call, right? Like this is a team of the future. It's a team of the present. It's got a couple of exciting drivers. There's some great legacy there. The cars look great on track. I came into this thinking I was going to hard sell Seth on the Williams team. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a hard sell. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> like, in hindsight, I kind of feel like I would be a day trader based out of a chop shop on Long Island in 2000 selling somebody in Kansas penny stock. Like I felt bad doing it. Like <laughs> I love Williams for all the reasons that people know. I just, I don't see them hitting. I don't see them hitting a stride anytime soon. And hopefully that changes next year. And hopefully Latifi's able to enjoy some success. So as much as I have an emotional investment in that team, I'm really struggling to sell somebody on making that their allegiance. So for me, I actually changed. So I came into this planning to talk about Williams and I felt a little bit guilty doing that, but now I'm all in on Alpha Tauri. And I think the principal reason is one, you've got two young, super exciting drivers, one who's already run a race, one who's doing relatively well as a rookie, but is an exciting individual with a great personality. And I think, and we talked about this a couple of minutes ago, Alpha, Alpha Tauri or Toro Rosso was already trapped in this position where it was never going to be anything but Red Bull's B team. Like at the end of the day, Red Bull from a financial perspective couldn't care less if they scored any championship points. It was simply there as a pathway to develop their drivers from their lower academy into that Red Bull seat. So when they bring one of their driver academy products into a Red Bull car, they're already Formula One season. They know the tracks, they're used to the grip, they're used to the mechanicals, they're used to the brakes. But I I, I now I'm kind of of the perspective that as the economics and the structure of the sport changes going into 2022 and the regulations are different, ultimately this could be a competitive team. And if I'm Red Bull now, I'm looking at it's like, you know, we could have our Red Bull team, which is our premier team, but we could also have a second team that could possibly serve two purposes. One, it could house our younger talented drivers. But with this new power unit that we're continuing to develop, they themselves could be competitive. And now we could possibly cash in with two teams scoring big championship points for the first time ever. And again, it's always been designed by design, right? Like they've always sacrificed the performance of Toro Rosso, Alpha Tauri, so they could move those drivers into the, the bigger squad. But all of a sudden, I'm in a position where Alpha Tauri could be pretty exciting. And also, I just love the white wheels. There's something about white yeah. wheels on a Formula One car that's a total turn on for me. So, Seth, I'm all in on Alpha Tauri, and you're all in on McLaren. You know, you do realize that the two choices we made were the ultra hipster kind of like insider tip kind of thing. I mean, the correct answer was 
go with Mercedes, go with Ferrari, because they always going to have the best drivers. They're going to have the yeah. chances to win. The merch looks great. I mean, you could throw yeah. Aston Martin into that one as well, because their merch looks great. I mean, they're all luxury brands, although you do look like a bit of a poser if uh, you're rocking all like the, the Ferrari merch and you show up in your 1998 Honda Civic that's uh, <laughs> got like a mismatched door, you know, like, a, you know, a door panel or something and uh, is belching smoke out the out, out the back. But, uh, but you know, what's the only thing that's worse than showing up wearing your Ferrari merch in a 1998 Honda Civic is showing up wearing Ferrari merch, driving your merch or driving a Ferrari. Like, that, that's the worst thing ever. It's like somebody who gets off of their Ducati motorbike and they're wearing Ducati jacket and helmet and pants and gloves. It's, it's a bad look. I'm, I'm, glad, uh, I'm glad we were able to share our thoughts on what team to uh, become emotionally invested in. Cool. All right. That was a great one. Uh, next question or comment. Or should we dive? I've got one in here in the go in the mailbox. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay, this is uh, from John Eminger in uh, in New York City. Anyways, or just in New York. Uh, I don't know if he's actually in New York City. Anyways, Gen DTS here, and this is my first full season of watching live race, uh, races. I was curious of uh, what you both think about Mick Schumacher and how you see his Formula One career playing out. As a relatively new fan, I was always aware of the Schumacher name and is undeniably still carries a ton of weight in the world of motorsport. I know there have been rumors that a seat with Ferrari would be inevitable, but given the unknown status of Hamilton and Bottas, could Mick make a play against Russell for one of the Mercedes seats? Also, how do you think he stacks up against the other young drivers who have already found success in Formula One, Leclerc, Norris, Sainz, Verstappen, etc.? Uh, thank you both uh, for the great uh, content, John in New York. You you were making a couple of uh, you, the gears are already turning. I can see. So so why did you take this one? I've got I've got my own two cents. I want to throw into this one as well. I'm going to let you go first. Sure. I'm still trying to formulate a response. Okay, That's no a problem. Question, but I'm still trying to formulate a response. It is. So I, I'm going to answer the second part of the question first uh, because I think that uh, that will kind of lead into where I'm going to go with uh, that uh, potential of an open seat uh, at Mercedes. So second part of John's question was he wanted to know how we think that Mick lines up against uh, these other young generations of uh, drivers like Charles, uh, Lando, etc. Right. Um, I. I think for me, it's it's too early to say. I think it's it's undeniable that he's a very good driver, but I think the the one thing that's uh, the, the the X factor for me really making an out and out, uh, I guess, the definitive call on this is just the handicap that he has in driving the Haas is because the the, the car is not competitive. It's it, it's not very fast, obviously, and he's not yeah. really challenging anybody. I mean, we did see him kind of mixing up in Portugal a couple of weeks ago, a couple of races back, and uh, he was fighting for some places, obviously well outside of the points. So, I mean, he has shown some things. I mean, he's still only six um, races into his Formula One career. And I think that uh, for, for anyone, Ferrari and even a Mercedes, I mean, the obvious link uh, like he ma- makes is that, uh, that that link to Ferrari because, you know, he's in the Ferrari Academy and all that. And let's face it uh, there would be 20 well i mean there's more than uh, 20 drivers that would want uh, one of those uh, mercedes seats but i think that uh, that that uh, decision will be a lot easier for them to make because i think unfortunately if you're mick schumacher if that one of those uh, seats ca- comes open at the end of the year i think it's just the right opportunity just way too soon right i i think that obviously those other comparisons are going to be uh, uh, made and those uh, parallel or those uh, parallels are going to be drawn with guys like uh, george russell right so, uh, and uh, we, we've talked about that uh, before. And obviously, I mean, he's got the link being a Mercedes uh, driver. He's come through their whole system. And, uh, you know, he uh, was the reserve driver. He was the reserve driver for the for, for Mercedes at one point, wasn't he, for a season? Or yeah. am I? Yeah. 
yeah so i mean he's really got the 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 the, the links there and i i think that um just because of the legacy and the the the, the pedigree and the whole legendary status uh, of the you know the family name schumacher carries in formula one that uh, i think there would be a lot of excited people to see a schumacher in a ferrari and see uh you know what uh, you know what he would be able to do could he match what his dad did for all those years at ferrari you know two decades ago i mean yeah that that's the great question but i think uh, basically it's 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 too soon to make a call on mick i agree and i think you make a really good point about the fact that he's in a car that is so woefully uncompetitive it's really challenging to understand what his strengths and his weaknesses are and this is where i struggle a little bit as well and i know this wasn't the question but i struggle a little bit with george russell in the sense that Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that are very excited about george russell ultimately he's in a terrible car at the back of the field and i get it he's consistently outqualified his teammates and finished a place or two ahead of them but it's it's very difficult to gauge how talented he is and ultimately that's not his fault because he's cursed with one of the worst cars in formula one mick meanwhile is in a very similar situation where it's it's difficult to gauge where he is from a developmental perspective i I think i think at least for mick it's year one right so the the transition to formula one is a very significant one and i remember having a conversation with nicholas latifi a couple of years ago when he was still in formula two but he was testing formula one cars and i'd asked him at the time like i'm like man what is the principal distinction between an f2 car and an f1 car he's like he said it's honestly man he's like it's just so difficult to come to to come to grasp the sheer amount of mechanical grip and the braking speeds he's like it's not something you learn in a weekend it's not something that you learn in a month it's something you have to learn with time so for for mick i think this is maybe a good transitionary year in the sense that hey he's in formula one he's on he's with Haas. there's no expectations whatsoever he can learn the car learn the tracks come to grips with the structure of a formula one car like maybe this is good what i worry about is I don't want to see him in a position where he's like George Russell buried with a back marker for three years because whether George deserves it or not, being isn't helping his development. Whatever he was going to learn with that team and that car, he learned two years ago. So hopefully with Mick, he gets a shot. And if not with Ferrari, because I think that's doubtful because I think they're fairly happy with their pairing. I think ultimately it would probably be a good move to get him to Alfa Romeo because Alfa Romeo, mm-hmm. again, part of the fam- the part of the Ferrari family, I think it would be really good for them from a marketing perspective. Kimi can't hold on forever. And I think a lot of people criticize Kimi because he's still in the sport, but I think Alfa Romeo needs him as much as he needs for Formula One at this point, simply because he provides a ton of value to them from a a marketing and a sponsorship perspective to be able to say, hey, we have a Formula World champion driving our car. But I think Mick would potentially offer that same value from a marketing and advertising perspective. My hope is that Mick gets away from Haas as soon as possible. I don't see the upside for that team. They're not investing in the car. I don't know that they're investing heavily in the 2022 car, but Mm -hmm. I think Mick could be good. I just think he needs to be away from that team as quickly as possible. Yeah, absolutely. You make some uh, great points there. And also that uh, lines up uh, very nice uh, with an email that we got from uh, JJ in Houston. I've been saving that one for the opportune time and uh, I haven't forgotten about you, JJ. I'm going to keep that one in my back pocket for a couple more days. and We'll talk about it on the the, the next show on Monday night. Um, Anyways, uh, Mark, let's take another break here and then we'll come back and we'll get uh, another batch of uh, fresh tweets and Uh, whatever else and we'll do so in just a moment so guys uh, don't go away we're not going anywhere and we'll uh, be back in just a few moments so don't go away
All right. Well, welcome back to the podcast. As always, up with form, up to speed with Formula One, and uh, we're in the mailbag right now. We're going over your tweets and messages, or just a selection. Uh, we just uh, we could literally do this uh, every day, night of the week. <laughs> I'm sure we could uh, with the uh, the volume of messages and emails that we get from you guys, which is uh, absolutely fantastic. Anyways, who's on deck? I've got a great one. So this comes from at Texas Tech Sean. So I'm a presuming he's a. I presume Sean is a fan of. Texas Tech and all things collegiate in Texas. This is a really interesting question. And I think this one deserves a little bit of context. And I'll kind of let you tee this one up. But had Shumi stayed a couple more years, where do you think Lewis would have ended up? And do you think Mercedes would still have become as dominant? Did Shumi, so being Michael Schumacher, did he have a, a another title or two in him at that time when he left Formula One? Yeah, isn't that a, a great question? Um I don't know. It's it, that really is fascinating, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure how to answer that one. Uh, to be quite honest, I, I would like to. I would like to think, you know, just uh, considering how great of a driver Schumacher was, that uh, perhaps he did leave a title or two on the tail or table. But you have to remember, at that point in his career, he was. He was. 42. Yeah, I mean, he was already up there. Quite, you know, not that forty two is very old, but I mean. I think he was beyond the peak there, and I think that uh, maybe he himself knew that, and I think that's why he uh, he pulled the plug and stepped away when he did. I think that he was really sticking around at that point to to really help get that program up and running and really help that to that that team to really find their feet and just lend all his experience and all his knowledge and everything that he'd accomplished in in, in Formula One. I mean, it, it's possible. But um, I, I don't think so. I think that's why it was such a great move uh, for Lewis, because I think it was the perfect opportunity at the right time. And he was just the, the, the right guy to take it. I, I agree with everything you say. And I think for our, our American fans, our North American fans, I think the best way to kind of pitch this is think about Michael Schumacher as Michael Jordan after he'd run off that second three-peat. Great point. Titles, and you think about Mick or Michael Schumacher, he'd won the title in 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004, run off five in a row. He finished third with a really, really disappointing, surprisingly disappointing Ferrari car in 05. He finished second in 06, and then he retired. So he retired, I would say, close to the peak, right? He'd won seven championships, and he kind of went out on top. He wasn't at he wasn't a back marker. He was still contending for race wins and podiums, but he retired. And then he came back in 2010 and he came back just like you said, because he wanted to help start up the Mercedes Grand Prix program. So Mercedes had stepped in. They purchased uh, the Braun GP team at the end of 2009. They branded it the Mercedes team. He finished ninth in 2010. He finished eighth in 2011. And then he slipped all the way to 13th in 2012, despite a podium. And I agree with you. Like, it's nice to kind of romanticize the fact that, hey, maybe if he'd stuck around a couple more years, he would have been in contention. But you think 2013, Mercedes didn't win a title with Rosberg and Hamilton. And that was the last year of the V8 era. 2014, you go into the turbo hybrid V6 era, they win that year, but you do the math. And at that point, he's 44, man. He's pushing 45 years old. And 
that's asking a lot for anybody, let alone somebody that at that point would have been in the sport for 20 plus years. It's a, it's an absolute grind. I don't think so. I think he would have done a disservice to the team. I think he left absolutely at the right time. I think he helped get the program started. He provided a ton of data, a ton of insight and a ton of feedback into the the car. Of course, everything that happened after that is terrible, but ultimately I don't think he was winning any titles. And I think he probably would have held the team back just based on his age. Yeah. You know, it's interesting too, because when I think about Schumacher, I always kind of think there's two two portions to his career because he did have that uh, retirement in, in between you have that the ferrari benetton era and of course uh yeah. when he he came into formula one that legendary weekend in spa for the jordan team yeah. that really kind of took the whole world by surprise and really launched him onto the uh, into the consciousness of uh, you know the the formula one world right yeah. and uh, everything that he uh, accomplished the two world championships with uh, benetton and then moving to ferrari when they still really weren't at their 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 peak i mean he went there obviously at a time where they were still building and what they accomplished with Braun and with Jean Tote and Rory Byrne and all these, you know, uh, amazing people that they had working uh, in the team at that time. I mean, the, the, the record uh, speaks for itself. And I mean, uh, even Ru- Rubens Barrichello had some uh, good moments in that car as well. Right. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he retires and he comes back and that's, I sometimes see it as two different Schumachers, you, you know, when, when you see the two different uh, points uh, to his career. But I totally agree. I think that uh, he he did ultimately walk away at the right time and uh, decide uh, that uh, I think for the reasons that you pointed out that he might have held them back. And you have to remember, too, is that at that point, I mean, Red Bull were at their strongest. I mean, Seb won, what, four titles in a row? I mean, they weren't uh, invincible, invincible like uh, Mercedes are or have been in this uh, this hybrid era, but they were the dominant team in and around uh, just uh, before the, the, you know, the, the switch over to the, the turbo hybrid engine. So yeah, great question. Cool. Have you got anything? I've got a couple more, but I want to make sure I give you the opportunity to tee one up. If you got anything. No, uh, we'll go back to the, to the tweets. Uh, the ones I've got cool. in the mailbag or the, they, they deserve some more time. So I'm going to save those for Monday night. Cool. And these are, these are good because they're kind of quick, fast, punchy questions, but I love this one. So this comes from okay. uh, Tanner Allen. And this is a great question, especially based on what we saw this weekend and in Baku. But here's the question. So why is it that Pirelli is the only tire company interested in F1? It feels like it would be good marketing. Uh, obviously, he means for another team or another company to be involved. Is it because the only time we really pay attention to the tire company <laughs> is when things go wrong? That's, <laughs> that's actually a really interesting question. Yeah, you know, it is. Uh, and I think I tweeted at the time when I was watching the race on Sundays. Uh, I think I said, well, I guess nobody's buying Pirelli's on Monday because, you know, the old saying, win on Sunday, sell on Monday. Uh, right. And I think that uh, goes, I think that's more, um, you know, for the, you know, NASCAR and Indy and stuff like that, especially stock car racing where, you know, you can see somebody, uh, driving to Monte Carlo, uh, you know, it's, uh, and uh, you, w- you win uh, driving to Monte Carlo and they're going to be selling Monte Carlos on uh, Monday morning, for example. But yeah, you know, it really is true. I mean, um, for a time there, we did have uh, multiple uh, tire manufacturers in Formula One. We had Bridgestone, we had uh, Goodyear. I mean, and, and at times we have had just a, a single tire manufacturer. I guess it really depends uh, who's really interested uh, in, in uh, participating. I mean, if you go back to the, um, well, not really all that long ago when uh, you know, you had Bridgestone and Goodyear involved in the sport. That that uh, one was always better than the other, and uh, and and sometimes it was um, the 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 difference between the two tires offered by the the different uh, manufacturers re- was really quite uh, it was really quite massive. So, I think that uh, when it comes to the fact that uh, we only have Pirelli now, 
Yeah, I guess from from one point of view, it's it kind of maybe doesn't look that great because of the, well, they're the only people that want to get involved with Formula One. But at least when everybody's on the same type of rubber, at least from that point of view, the the, the tables leveled, right? So that that there there is no distinct uh, disadvantage to having uh, Firestones or Goodyears or Pirellis or whatever it might be, right? I mean, it would be kind of cool to kind of open it up, but I, I personally I like the fact that there is only uh, one uh, one tire uh, provided, or there's only one uh, tire manufacturer, and then it comes down to the combination of car, engine, and driver. Well, you know, <laughs> there's still quite a few things going on there, but. You know, it's just that if you start to add too many variables in there, then that that that's a lot to try and make a competitive package. But it's it's a great question, and a, you know, it's 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 really one to kind of ponder over and think about. You did such a great job summarizing this. I don't know that I necessarily have a lot to add. I, I would add, of course, that to your point, there have been moments in history where you had multiple manufacturers supplying tires. So yeah. teams would go and negotiate with different tire manufacturers for tires. Um, until the end of two thousand six, I think we had. Goodyear and Michelin mm-hmm. producing Formula One tires. I think the challenge for Formula One is right now, one, there aren't a lot of companies that are particularly interested. It's a hugely expensive exercise to produce and feed tires to Formula One teams. And the, the listener, Tanner, makes a really good point as well that oftentimes we we only mention tires when something goes wrong. There's degradation issues, there's puncture issues, the, the tires are collapsing. Like You get a lot of heat and a lot of bad press being associated with Formula One. Ultimately, I think the biggest piece is that if you go back to 2003, 4, 5, 6, there was a massive tire war in the sport and costs were escalating. And then Ultimately, it really culminated in 2005 at the U.S. Grand Prix where you had teams show up and one set of teams had one tire and one set of teams had another tire. And I'm not going to go into the specifics now, but I highly encourage everyone to go and check YouTube for the 2005 U.S. Grand Prix. But ultimately, one of the uh, one of the sets of teams that were relying on one tire brought a tire to the track and the manufacturer hadn't equipped that tire with the capabilities to, to survive the load in one of the bank turns mm-hmm. and ultimately a large group of teams, seven of the 10 teams, in fact, couldn't actually compete or wouldn't compete for safety reasons. And the race was run with three teams and six cars, and it effectively broke. It broke Formula One in the US until 2012, really until 2015. Yeah, I I don't think Formula One wants that. And you added another point that I'd never thought about as well. Having a single tire supplier really feeds into this whole premise of a cost cap and controlling a cost. But it's also a really great point that I'd never thought of it adds a degree of parity, right? Like there would be nothing worse than having everything right. A great car, a great driver, a great aero package, and then just having to sign a contract with the worst tire supplier and having your entire season derailed because of that one decision. I think, I think I like where we are now. And I think you agree. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Cool. All right. Would you like another question or do we have time before another break? Um, well, let's just take a, a quick break here. This is a, a good spot for it. And then we'll dive back in. I still have a bunch of news stories I want to talk about uh, when we uh, when we come back. And uh, we still got plenty of time. You know, it's it's almost weekend. So why not hang out a little bit longer and talk Formula One? And we will uh, pick up the conversation on the flip side. So don't go away. We'll be right back.
Okay, welcome back to the show. First, uh, before we uh, get back into it, just a quick uh, shout out to, to Kiefer and Alexis in Connecticut uh, saying hi on the YouTube stream. Uh, kind of cool uh, for people to, to, to check in there. It's uh, kind of neat uh, that we've been uh, live streaming uh, recently and good fun. So we should, uh, you know, if we were, had a more set schedule, people could actually uh, know when to look for us. But that's more on me than on you. So uh, l- let's move on. <laughs> What's up next? So here's one question, and this is more of a general question that I think we get from that we get from a, a lot of our listeners. And the question is really driven around the concept of the salary cap. And it's something that we actually talked about a lot on the live chat last night. And mm-hmm. it's something that in North America, I think we're conditioned to, right? Like if you look at the structure of North American sports in the NFL, they have a collective bargaining agreement. They've got a very fiercely managed salary cap. Likewise in the NHL, they had a lockout back in, I think it was 2005. They lost an entire season because the owners were so intent on implementing a salary cap. The NBA's had a salary cap for decades and they revisit with, uh, on regular intervals when the collective bargaining agreement uh, expires. The last time, unfortunately, unfortunately, there wasn't a labor disruption. But in North America, we're conditioned to this concept. Mm-hmm. In Europe, they're not. So the funny thing is, when we talk about a driver salary cap, our listeners in Europe are up in arms. Like, what is this salary cap? This is terrible. Why would you restrain the teams from being able to spend as much money as they want? Because in European football, that, that concept of a salary cap is totally foreign. In North America, the sense that I get from our listeners is, yeah, makes totally I've shared via the live chat and Twitter quite a bit my thoughts on a salary cap, but I think a lot of the listeners kind of want your sense and your perspective on is salary cap good for the sport? How do you think it should work? Um, and do you think the drivers would ultimately accept it? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Uh, I, I think that it is a, a good idea because I mean the way that uh, spending has been going in Formula One. I mean it's nothing new. I mean it, it, it's all relative into what, what era, whatever era you look at it. It doesn't ma- you know matter if it's uh, right now in the twenty twenties or the two thousands or the nineties, the eighties, the seventies. The thing is, I mean, there's always been unrestrained uh, spending, and especially in this day and age, I mean, it's just uh, gotten to the point where it is um, completely. I think, uh, unmanageable. And I think that was really highlighted uh, just over a year ago when the whole pandemic started and all of a sudden, okay, you're not going to have people in seats. You know, there's no there's no guarantee we're even going to get a season going. And then even if we do get a season going, we're probably not going to get people coming in. So maybe we'll be able to broadcast the races from behind closed doors. So there, you know, there might be some you know, TV revenue. So, I mean, they had they, they had this opportunity to really look at, uh, at, at this up close. I mean, there have been talks about it uh, for a while but nothing ever came of it i think basically because um you know bernie was in charge of the, the the sport for so long and i think his attitude was either you have enough money to be in formula one if you don't uh, too bad go spend your money somewhere else or don't spend it at all right but in this day and age i mean that's a bit too much of a cavalier attitude uh, to, to have and the, the point is i mean you could be say one of the the small teams in formula one and still be spending tens or in some cases maybe upwards of a hundred billion dollars or pounds or euros or more and you could still be a totally crazy crappy, garbage, sucky team and, you know, getting a terrible ROI on, uh, you know, on, on the money that you're putting in there because you've got teams like Ferrari and uh, Mercedes who are spending upwards of uh, $500 million or more per year on uh, their their teams and their drivers and everything. So I, th- I think it's just a logical step. I mean, if you're going to put the cost cap in on the, on the back end, 
on the the R&D, the size of the organization, the amount of money that they have to to run a Formula One team that's going to be on this sliding scale. You know, it's going to what, what are we at this year? 145 million or something? Yeah. yeah. So it's going to scale down over the next couple of years till they hit the 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 floor that they want to get to of 130 million dollars. And I think that the uh, you know the, the next step is that uh, you know if you're going to have the, the the cost cap, then the driver salary thing makes sense. I mean, does this mean that these uh, drivers should take a pay cut? No. But I think that there should be some, you know, there, there should be some limit as to what they can uh, spend. And I think we, we've sort of tossed around some ideas before that, I don't know, maybe you get 25 or 50 million or whatever it is, period. And then, uh, you know, for, for, for drivers, and then it's up to you to decide, do I want to give 40 million to one guy and tw- 10 to another or whatever, you know, that, uh, that, that hard cap space is. And um, it, it still blows my mind. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago, the fact that all these driver's salaries are, um, you know, they're, they're all locked away at some secret vaults in Geneva and only a handful of people who know the secret handshake can actually get in and see these things. And, you know, I, I can understand from one point of view that uh, that these guys don't want uh, their business being published out there. But I don't know. I, I always find it interesting when you hear the terms of a deal of a, a you know, what Le, what's LeBron making or what's Tom Brady's new contract with the with the Buccaneers light or whoever it is, right? You you always like to hear these uh, things, or sometimes you, you see these ridiculous uh, contracts handed out in the uh, in the NHL. I mean, it's it's kind of getting into the weeds a little bit, but uh, as a sports fan, I kind of enjoy that too. Just uh, trying to see, okay, this is the team. Like, uh, you know, how are the Yankees going to build a team to run, make a run at the World Series, or the Lakers, or what, whoever, right? So whatever sport, I kind of find a certain nerdy attraction in knowing those numbers and what what people are making, and uh, just uh, you know, because you always see in, in some of the North American sports how some teams have gotten themselves into bad uh, situations because they've handcuffed them themselves with with bad deals and you know they don't have the cap space or they don't have the wiggle room to get out of some of these deals and uh and and, and build a competitive team but i guess it's a little bit different if you're looking at a you know a roster for an nhl team compared to a formula one team that has 130 dollars uh, 130 million dollars a year to develop and build a car and then say 30 billion dollars cap for driver's salary so there are some uh, differences there but in a long uh, a long roundabout way then uh, yes i guess i am in favor of a driver's salary cap and ultimately and i think you did a fantastic job of summarizing your thoughts and what the potential impact would be if we went into an era where it was a 20 million say 20 million euro or 20 million dollar salary cap or whatever the number is Mm -hmm. ultimately there aren't a lot of drivers that are going to be impacted by this and i think the way that you could sell it to the drivers is this like look guys we need to implement a salary cap for this reason. But the promise is we're also going to have a salary floor. Because if you look at Formula yeah. 1 this year, and this was something that, and I don't know how reputable this is as a tabloid, but if you're to believe the Irish mirror, the yearly earnings of pounds, Max is at 19 million, Fernando's at 15, Seb's at 11, Daniel's at 11. Ultimately, if if the salary cap is going to be 20 million pounds or 30 million dollars or whatever the case is, there's really only four or five drivers that would be impacted by this, right? Mm -hmm. These are some drivers, with the exception of Max, that are probably on the backside of their career. Fernando for sure, Seb for sure, uh, Lewis for sure. And then if you look at the bottom of the the (laughs) earnings as well, 
it's shocking how little some some of these drivers make. So Yuki, it's speculated his contract for this year is three hundred sixty four thousand pounds, so under a million US, maybe close to six or seven hundred thousand US. Latifi seven thirty, Nikita seven thirty, although they're both technically pay drivers, so they don't really care. Mix earning seven thirty, Giovinazzi is earning seven thirty, Russell's at seven thirty, Esteban Ocon's at three point six million pounds, so about five million six million US. Like the, the earnings aren't huge, so ultimately if they did implement a twenty million or thirty million dollar US salary cap, the impact's going to be pretty negligible. Mm-hmm. I and mean, the way you can these drivers is like, hey, you know what, might impact a few of you at the top end, but ultimately, if we implement a salary floor, it could benefit all of you. So yeah. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. And if it helps bring cost certainty to the sport, then that's a great thing. And ultimately, if I'm Lewis, or if I'm Fernando, and this is the point that Charlie and Andre were making yesterday, when we we're talking in the Twitter is, Ultimately, it's going to make sure that the drivers make their decisions about teams based on winning potential, because even though your earnings might be flat, your marketability and your promotional opportunities might be greater because you're with a winning team. So, hey, maybe you're not earning that through your paycheck with the team, but maybe you can go and sell yourself to Wheaties or Pepsi or Coke or whoever the case ultimately might be. Hey, you you stole, I was actually going to say that, uh, that that I was going to make that, uh, that exact, the endorsement, uh, like opportunities that maybe, uh, you know, you're, you, you hit the, the, the maximum, the salary cap, but uh, you know, yeah, they they get your face on the the box of Wheaties, and then there 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 you go. So great minds that think alike. So moving on, what's the next one? <laughs> so here's a great one. I'm gonna let you take this one. So sure. this comes from. Oh my gosh, hold on. Let me make sure. I, I want to make sure I get his name right. So his Twitter name is Beb Settle, which I always get a chuckle out of, but at Big Dumb Rocket. So I believe it's one of our Canadian listeners based out of the Atlantic provinces. Which I believe uh, b- before, I'm, I'm not sure if it's Veb Settle, but uh, before it used to be Hall and Oates. And I got this really kind of like crazy, kind of like a fanboy moment thinking that maybe it was uh, Daryl Hannah or whatever, uh, John Oates uh, actually uh, listening to the, the, the show, right? Or uh, Daryl yeah, Hall or whatever, right? We had some. We have some, and this is going to be a subtle flex, but we certainly have some verified listeners on Twitter. But uh, here's the question. You have to listen. I had to read this a couple of times to understand it, even though it's phrased perfectly. Mm-hmm. Either a question for the mailbag or just one to throw out on Twitter. Sure. If you could choose one field. So I think by that, he means like one era of driver, one field of drivers that were racing at the same time. If you could choose one field from the past, to race on a track that wasn't around then. So let's say it's a field of drivers from the past that could race on a track from today. Which era would you take those drivers from and what track would you put them on? Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, You did send this one uh, to me before. So I've had the opportunity to think about this and I'm going to kind of go back. uh, I'm going to go old school on this one, like really old school. So I'm going to pick up the class of drivers that uh, included um, Ayrton Senna, Alan Prost, Nigel Mansell, Nelson Piquet, Gerhard Berger, Jean Alesi, you know, sort of like late 80s, early 90s. And, uh, you know, I thought uh, long and hard about this one, but I'd throw them all out into Baku, you know, just uh, because, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there was some really, uh, you know, some some really hard fought racing in that class of uh, drivers and uh, put them onto a track like uh, Baku City that has, uh, you know, some interesting challenges and unique properties into that circuit, uh, you know, uh, on it, on its own. But I would love to see those guys uh, out there racing on that uh, on that track. I mean, I really had to think about that. Uh, you know, how many of these tracks weren't around back then? I mean. Australia was, but that would have been in Adelaide rather than Melbourne. And then I thought about some of the other ones like Singapore. I mean, Singapore is a cool track. Uh, I mean, it's a city uh, circuit again, but, uh, you know, I, I wasn't feeling that one as much as, uh, say, Baku, just because, you know, you, you have some 
some very unique and contrasting characteristics on that circuit compared to uh, Singapore, for example. I mean, that's got a very city circuit vibe to it, uh, whereas uh, uh, whereas Baku doesn't. And I was thinking about some of the other ones. I mean, uh, Sakir is 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 an interesting track. So was Turkey. Um, I even gave sort of momentary thought uh, and, and um, consideration to Mugello from last year, even though that was a temporary track. track but I kept coming back to Baku City. How about yourself? Oh, that's such a good answer. I I couldn't come up with an era or a track because what I couldn't wrap my head around is while we do this, Mm -hmm. do we want them driving their cars on today's track or do we want to put them into today's cars? Because that for me would almost be the more interesting thing to see. So I, I guess for context, today's cars are faster they they they're grippier they stop quicker than anything that these drivers would have known but the perception is that they're possibly easier to drive even though they don't have a ton of driver aids i just like i sense that those cars in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s i i I sense that the steering was heavy braking was exhausting shifting gears was like you were physically shifting and Mm -hmm. putting in a clutch the experience of driving the cars in the 70s and the 80s and 90s is totally different than today. Now, the difference today is that even though the cars don't have a ton of luxurious drivers, they don't have air conditioning, they don't have traction control, uh, they, they don't have a lot of these things that we would see in a road car, but you still don't have to worry about a clutch pedal. You don't have to worry about shifting gears or missing a gear or grinding gears or getting stuck in neutral. Everything, like all the gear changes happen in the blink of an eye at the steering wheel. But that said, so as much as the cars make life a little bit easier for the drivers. I think the G-forces in the speeds are something that those drivers from previous eras would have to adapt to. So I think what I would be more interested in seeing is if you gave those drivers from a previous era a year to condition and learn to drive those cars, how would they perform? I would be very, very curious to see how a PK or a Senna or a Prost or I, a G, nah, not JV. JV annoys me. Um, <laughs> or or any of those great drivers from kind of the late 80s and the early 90s. I'd love to see how they would excel in a car today. And then, of course, the other piece, too, is the cars are just much bigger. So they're far less maneuverable. But, yeah, this is a really good question. We could probably talk about this forever. So I don't have an answer. But yeah. what I would like to see is that same era of drivers that you mentioned in a modern car. Yeah, that that's actually really cool. Uh, that was a twist that uh, that I never actually thought of. I actually just thought to take those guys from like the late '80s and '90s and put them in their cars into uh, onto Baku City and see how they would do. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, you, you raise a really really great point. Sure, there are a ton of driver aids that these cars have that they didn't have then. I mean, uh, you know, if you you know, time traveled back in time and sat down and started uh, talking about uh, things like uh, MGUKs and MGUHs yeah. <laughs> and and engine maps and things like that. They'd, they'd be looking at you, you know, like uh, I, you, you're sound, you're speaking English words, but I don't understand what any of them mean, kind of thing. But yeah, that would be kind of cool to take that class of drivers in their prime and throw them into these cars and uh, see how long it would take for them to adapt. Great call. Yeah. And that's that's really always the debate with North American sports, right? Is like, what if you took that great NBA player, that great baseball player from the 50s or the 60s or the 70s, and you put them into the modern era and you allowed them the benefit of today's uh, medical capabilities and scientific knowledge and nutritional information and training regimens? Because, you know, you look back at the NBA and Major League Baseball in the 50s and the 60s and 70s and even the 80s, they're smoking in the dugout. They're smoking in the clubhouse in between, <laughs> the right? Like just... 
the understanding of medical science was very different. But Formula One was exactly the same thing. Like you see these photos of James Hunt sitting on the car between practice sessions, drinking a beer and eating his lunch out of the lunchbox with his shirt off. Like it was a very, very different area. And I'm sure some of the drivers would adapt beautifully, but I think there's probably an equal number that wouldn't be able to adapt to the the current standards of uh, sports science and nutrition, et cetera. You know what, uh, just before we move on to the next one, I mean, uh, the, the, the way that I see this one going is uh, which athlete would you like to see into that car? And I'm going to go with Shaq. You know, no matter how big these cars are, they would still be like slippers for, for Shaq. You could put one Formula One car on each foot and there you go. That's so, and by the way, Shaq is a hilarious follow on social media. And I love the work that he does on TNT with Kenny and Charles and the group. I, he He's a guy that shows up with zero prep whatsoever. <laughs> terrible terrible takes and often they're unfounded and he gets players anyways he's hilarious i I love shaq i love shaq too okay moving on what's uh what's up next so this one's a little bit unrelated to f1 but it comes up quite often because i think we tease a little bit of our interest in in professional sports but one of the questions we get quite often is you know what sports teams do you follow so what are your favorite teams in the big leagues what football club do you do you follow and i think i would let you go first oh i I, i'm a huge sports guy like um uh, it's uh, not just a formula one that's obviously one of my passions but uh, you can see i'm uh, rocking the uh, team canada sweater today for for ice hockey i was just uh, before i came down i was upstairs watching the colorado avalanche and uh, the vegas golden knights in the nhl playoffs um we're in vancouver so uh i'm a big hockey fan i've been a canucks fan my whole life when it comes uh, to football um, you know, I, I'm a Seahawks fan, you know, no shame in saying that. And you can say, okay, well, you probably just a fair weather fan that, uh, that, uh, that, that jumped on after they uh, won the Super Bowl. No, I'll go upstairs. I will pull out the Rick Meyer uh, a shirt out of my 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 Kingdom, yeah me. yeah Kingdom, I, I will pull out the Rick Meyer jersey. So I'll I'll, uh, I'll uh, go up and step up on, on that one. And also, um, yeah, I love baseball, love uh, football, obviously uh, soccer. A, a big fan of uh, Manchester United. Uh, always uh, my favorite team. You know, the reason why I picked Man United is because everybody in my family hated Man United. I'm like they're the team everybody hates, so that's the team I'm going to cheer for. So horrible logic on that one. Uh, and of course, Vancouver Whitecaps, uh, which is a team that uh, that I covered for years and years in uh, Vancouver, not so much uh, or at all these days, but uh, certainly I always enjoyed watching the Whitecaps and also a um, uh, big fan of uh professional cycling uh, this is a great year for for cycling we just had the giro uh the giro d'italia just uh, last month the tour de france is coming up we've got the olympics and uh, the cycling look forward in that and then the volta de España coming up in september so basically when it comes to sports i, I pretty much uh, watch it all i, I have the problem that uh, i can't even sit down and enjoy uh, all the sports i want to because you know other things get in the way <laughs> i didn't even mention baseball yet either so man it's challenging in your case too and I, I won't share the exact number but you have you have a large collection of children so you you have to manage your time very very carefully so i don't even know how you consume the sports that you 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 do consume well i, I try and manipulate them into it's a good way to spend family time and that uh that that uh, you know hey you know that sports is on let's go watch the hockey game or let's go watch the ball game and uh and hope that they uh you know will become sports fans themselves and then it becomes a bit of an easier sell rather than getting these uh, really, really icy stares uh, from other members of the family. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I'll, quickly, <laughs> I'll quickly share, I think, mine as well. So I, I'm also a, a big sports fan. I, I spent uh, a lot of my youth in the UK, so I have a, a natural affinity for Arsenal. And it's not because of any specific reason other than the fact that typically in families, and it's funny because in your case, your family 
was opposed to the team that you liked and that was the team that you adopted. But in my case, I became an Arsenal fan just because that kind of ran in the, the blood and it was accessible and people would talk about it and things like that. Uh, when we moved to North America, it was right about the time that the Toronto Blue Jays were, I guess it was shortly after they moved into Skydome, so around like 89, 90. Mm-hmm. So they were exceptional. Um, in Canada, we didn't have a ton of sports TV. So back then we had a single sports uh, network, TSN, and every almost every Toronto Blue Jays game was on there. So no matter where you lived in Canada, the Toronto Blue Jays were super accessible. They were super exciting. They were just stacked from a talent perspective. So I was a huge Toronto Blue Jay fan. And of course, early on, they won a World Series in 92 and 93 before they disappeared from relevance for four or five years before regaining a little bit of relevance. But I, I remained a big baseball fan. I, I played baseball at some very, very competitive levels. Um, I was I, I, I didn't get drafted um, despite some interest from some West Coast teams. So that was still a little bit heartbreaking. Um, but ultimately, I, I got to play baseball at some pretty high levels. I was a big fan of baseball during the, the late 90s and the early 2000s. And I was all in on the performance-enhancing drug era because I was such a big fan <laughs> of, of the offense. Um, but I was also a huge, I am also a, a huge, huge NBA fan. And I fell in love with the NBA when the NBA expanded to Vancouver and Toronto in 95. Hmm. I was the biggest diehard Grizzlies fan in the world. I taped every game. I watched every game. I read the box scores. I was obsessed. And in 1999, so people forget this because the team ultimately moved to Memphis in 2001 after the 2001 season, but they were actually bought in 99 by uh, the San or the, uh, Oh my goodness. Uh, the St. Louis blues owner, Bill Laurie. And he, he had full intention of moving the team to St. Louis. And I was heartbroken. And to this day, it was still the hardest emotional phase I've ever been to. It was like, it was like getting divorced like seven times at once. (laughs) So tough. And ultimately, ultimately, of course, David Sturm stepped in. He said, no way these, this, this market needs more of an opportunity. And then ultimately they were swindled anyways, and they got moved to Memphis. And obviously I think that was a big mistake because Vancouver has just exploded in size and wealth and population since then and Memphis. And, you know, and I have nothing against the people of Memphis. I'm happy they're doing well. I'm happy the team's exciting. And for the first time, I'm actually interested in, and, and kind of cheering for that team. But in 2001, I switched allegiances to the Toronto Raptors and I suffered for the better part of 13 years with that team. And of course, I absolutely relished the 2019 championship. I was actually at game five of the finals in Toronto and Kyle Lowry missed a a three pointer at the buzzer that would have won the title. So I missed out on seeing a, an NBA championship in person, but it was still great to be part of the, uh, the NBA Finals, and then of course I follow some other teams as well. So I'm a big fan of Japanese baseball. I've been a, a big Ham Fighters fan ever since they played in Tokyo before they moved to Hokkaido, um, and a bunch of other stuff as well. So yeah, sports, sports, sports. I know it's uh, you know it, it's everything else sorts of gets uh, gets in the way, doesn't it? But the one thing I could never actually uh, figure out uh, is uh, after the Grizzlies leave, did they take uh, Bryant Big Country Reeves with them, or did uh, is he yeah. still around somewhere? You know, there was a documentary came out uh, about what uh, what what Big Country did after his career at the NBA, and I never actually did uh, check it out. But uh, your time. He, he lives <laughs> on a farm, and he yeah he looks. That's all you need to know. He's happy <laughs> on a farm somewhere. And it's it's so funny, right? Like you could write you could write an entire paper, a study, a textbook on how badly managed that team was. Every single decision. Like, and it's not even like, hey, 25 years later, we look back, that was a bad decision. It was such they were all bad decisions at the time. Like you, you were gonna draft. So it was one thing to draft Bryant Reeves, right? Like that. He's your first pick in the first round in 95. He's the guy you're gonna sign, build your entire organization around. 
it's a mistake. Everyone knows it's a mistake. But then in the summer of 98, you sign him to a $60 million extension. And people talk about the fact that, well, it was the Kevin Garnett, the $100 million plus Kevin Garnett extension that led to the labor disruption. No, it was it was the Bryant Reeves signing for $60 million. But anyways, I digress. We shouldn't be talking so much about... Well, uh, about before, I, I want to talk about one more thing about, uh, and we'll wrap it up on a Formula One note, which we should sure. do. But uh, just going back to the, the, the Grizzlies, everything you need to know about them and where the missteps were, go back to then general manager Stu Jackson. Because I remember him relating to one story about like in the early 70s or whatever it was, somebody had uh, approached him about uh, investing a small sum of money although five grand uh, probably wasn't uh, you know a small amount in the early 70s but anyways he had the opportunity to invest five grand into nike way back in the day and he turned it down because he thought that the company would uh, never take off so there, there you go uh anyways uh, moving back to formula one and we're going to close it off because we we don't have a race this uh, weekend uh, we've got a week off until we go to um uh, paul ricard and um, it's interesting too because uh, mercedes says that they've um they they believe what they call uh, a really promising theory about some of the struggles that they've had with the W12. And it has to do with the the difficulties that they've had uh, warming up the, 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 the front tires on the car. And uh, it's, I find it really interesting because we're six races into the season and obviously that this car is not as good as they, they, they thought it was going to be because I remember, excuse me, going back uh, uh, you know, a year ago, they were saying that the W11, the 2020 car, was the best car that they'd ever built. And this car is just a development of that, that, that car. I mean, it's basically all a development of the 2019 car. But I mean, the, the, the changes to the cars this year are subtle. And this car is not really lived up to the hype. And, you know, we've seen some of the issues that they've had so far this year. And I just find it really fascinating that after six races, they just now have a promising theory. They don't have an answer, but they have a promising theory that it's uh, it's all related to the issues that they're having uh, to warming up the front tires. What, what do you think about that, Mark? Is that, is, is that as surprising to you as it is to me or no? I don't know, man. It's and it's funny. It kind of ties in with one of the questions. So somebody had actually just asked us on the live stream as well. Tasimba, Tasimba, um, specifically asked, "Do you think Mercedes will return? The Mercedes that we know and, and love, will that team return at Paul Ricard?" I'm not super confident. I, I just I feel like the team, as a marketing exercise, has to project some sense of confidence. Mm-hmm. But I think it, it hasn't just been one thing that's derailed this team, right? Like if they'd been able to finish every single race and they were and they were simply off the pace, or their times in certain sectors were consistently low, or they were having traction issues in certain corners and then like aha here's that one thing but it just seems to be so many different things it's it's driver error it's driver execution it's pit execution i don't know that one single thing is going to solve this huge variety of very different issues that they've been encountering so it's good that they're projecting some some positivity outwards but i think Paul Ricard will be telling. And we were talking about this yesterday when we were doing our live chat, but historically, with the exception of a couple of podiums that Ferrari scored, Mercedes has owned that event. They've owned that event since Paul Ricard was back on the calendar. I'm not I'm not particularly confident that they're going to win or they're going to score a poll here simply because, and I want to be careful because I've been criticized, justifiably so, for sounding a little bit too pro-Red Bull, but Red Bull just seems to be dialed in in a way that that Mercedes Mm -hmm. and the sense I get, and we don't know this is that all things being equal from an arrow perspective and a driver perspective, 
every piece of data and every piece of telemetry is telling us that that Red Bull is a faster car. So if they're equal in the corner and the arrow is equal and the driver is equal, that Red Bull is just a faster car. And this is a track that that works really well for powerful cars. It's got long, fast, sweeping corners. And I just, I feel like the Red Bull cars are going to be successful there. Yeah, that's why I think it was um, really so striking to me the last weekend. We talked about it in the post-race uh, show on Sunday night that it really looked like it was a role reversal. You had Max uh, out yeah. there leading the race, then you had Sergio in second. Sort of that, uh, that, that buffer between Max and Lewis, and then Lewis in that position, he was close, but not quite close enough to make a, a move on Perez. He had a couple of opportunities, and it, it really looked like they, they'd switched places because Lewis was in that spot where, where Max um, has been for the past uh, year or two, and then uh, Sergio was the place where Bottas usually is. And then Lewis was trying to do the things that Max would usually be doing to try and get around uh, Bottas to try and make a run at the, the the lead, and it was just it really stuck out or stuck out more that uh, that last race than maybe some of the other races this evening or this season. But I mean, they've been fairly it's been fairly even, right? I mean, they they were all pretty even when we went uh, to uh, to to uh, uh, ba- sorry not Baku but Bahrain. And then Imola was, I guess, maybe a little bit more advantage uh, Red Bull. And then it kind of seesawed back and forth in uh, in Portugal and then Spain. But to give a slight edge uh, maybe to uh, Mercedes, those two tracks kind of uh, suited them more. And then, yeah, it, it's just uh, – but I just don't have a lot of confidence in, in Mercedes. And the, 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 the big question is, of course – that if there are issues uh, with with the car, how much are they going to really going to be invested uh, into spending the time, into the money, into upgrading the car, knowing that uh, the slate is going to be completely uh, wiped clean, the etch a sketch is going to be shaken up and uh, be brand new for 2022 with these new cars. At some point, uh, they're just going to say, you know, it is what it is, and uh, maybe this is the one that, um, yeah, although it sucks that we're not going to win the championship, or maybe we win one and not the other. But maybe this is the one that uh, we we maybe concede and uh, really focus on 2022 and getting back on uh, winning and and dominating like we've done for so many years. And, you know, maybe there's something to that. And I don't think they throw in the white towel anytime soon, but maybe that point in the season comes because I think heading into this year, Hamilton's future with this team seemed pretty uncertain. And we know he wasn't happy with the term of the deal. We know he wasn't happy with the very substantial pay cut he took coming into this season, especially when the value of the team is skyrocketing and, and total wolf is simply he's cashed it in. (laughs) He's making so much money off of this team. Like I think, I think Lewis has every reason to be unhappy with the size of that contract because Toto is not spicing anything. And justifiably so like he helped build this organization. But I think, uh, I think that, there's confidence now that Hamilton will be back in 2022 and possibly 2023. Like if he has another two years in him, if this year looks like it's going to be a romp for Red Bull, at what point do you just reposition your resources and go all in on 2022, 2023? Again, 2022 and 2023, the risk is that it's going to be incredibly unpredictable and no one, nobody would know what it's going to look like with the yep. new regs. And there's no guarantee that you're going to show up with a front running kind of car that's going to score podiums every single weekend. One other comment real quick, um, because I know you're eager to move on. Michael Prince on the live stream says, you guys look nothing like I expected you guys to look like. I don't know what that means or how to take it. (laughs) Compliment? 
I hope so. Uh, if uh, if we show up next week uh, wearing paper bags, you'll know what uh, <laughs> our self conscious sides uh, picked up on uh, or, or took over on that one. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was just uh, it's one of those things, right? I mean, uh, we, we were forced to do the show remotely uh, because of the whole pandemic and the social distancing and just wanting to do the responsible thing. But it really does kind of uh, leave us uh, with uh, with some choices to make here now that things are starting to go back to normal. It's just uh, we started uh, recording the video just because hey we were we were video conferencing uh, anyways and at some point we're gonna have to make a call it's just like are we gonna want to uh, start putting some serious effort into improving our youtube uh, presence uh, but uh, you know unfortunately the looks are the way that they are so we, we can maybe improve the production and maybe uh, Im- improve the 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 type of content but uh, looks i'm afraid uh, you guys are stuck with what you got so <laughs> for better or worse before we sign off okay keep saying this we need just 16 16- more followers to hit 2000 on Twitter. And I'm not the one to beg or ask, but I would love if we were able to hit 2000 so we could celebrate that on this upcoming, uh, upcoming Monday show. And the reason that I'm so proud of that, that follower count is simply because I scroll through it. These aren't eggs. These aren't bots. These are legit F1 fans that are, are here to talk about F1 and be part of the community and be part of the team. And and I love it, but I would be so excited if we were able to hit 2,000 followers for the next pod. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, thanks for uh, all the engagement and the follows and the downloads and the views and everything. And uh, for especially those uh, those of you brave enough to uh, sit through the live stream uh, while we while, while, while we do this, uh, it is really cool to, to be able to interact with you guys, uh, you know, real time. It's a lot of fun. And that's the whole point uh, that we do the show is to sit down, talk Formula One, and talk about it with you guys and uh, we love getting all the uh, the, the questions and the comments and uh, we'll, we'll do so again next time and uh that, well we could go on but uh in the interest of uh, people have other things to do with their lives we're going to cut it off here and uh, because we don't have uh, the race uh, this weekend you don't have to wait uh, a full week until we come back with an- another show so we'll come back on uh, monday night and until then on behalf of myself and uh, my friend and co-host mark hamilton thank you for listening thank you for watching thanks for the tweets and the emails if you want to get in touch uh, by all means, do so on Twitter at Scuderia F1 Pod or on uh, or via email. That is at Scuderia F1 Pod at gmail.com. And that's it. That's a wrap. Have a great weekend, guys. Take care, and we'll talk to you again very, very soon. Bye for now.